Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, we start with something other than COVID-19 after 11 weeks. However, it's just exhausting when we see what is going on in retaliation to the death of George Floyd. This weekend, we saw the launch of the SpaceX capsule taking the first Americans up into space in their own craft in nine years. And the Sobe bike system in Hamilton has been saved for now. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I think this is the first time in 12 weeks we have started off with something other than COVID-19. And uh, obviously the protests continue uh, around the world, I guess, uh, mostly in the United States. But uh, obviously we've seen uh, demonstrations in Canada as well. This all in regard to uh, the death of George Floyd, who... uh, (laughs) My goodness, one week ago today, we saw the horrifying video of a uh, police officer uh, holding his knee to the neck of George Floyd until uh, he eventually succumbed to uh, having his neck basically crushed. Uh, To talk more about all of this and what has happened over the weekend, not only in Washington, but around the world and uh, major cities across the United States. Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Uh, obviously an incredible weekend, uh, especially in and around the uh, Washington area. Here it is one week out of the death of George Floyd. Does this show any signs of simmering down, any signs of calming down? It doesn't uh, as of yet. And there is a, a very strong and very legitimate concern across the country that these kind of protests are going to once again heat up through the day today. Uh, You know, you just look at something like yesterday's protest in Washington, D.C., that started off with a couple of hundred people uh, just, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. uh, And by sundown, the tensions had escalated to a point of where tear uh, tear gas and and pepper spray were being released for a third day in a row on the protesters. And there is a fear that that is going to uh, happen again, which is why D.C.'s mayor has actually increased the curfew from 11 o'clock to 7 o'clock. Uh, many have said these uh, demonstrations and protests certainly take on a different flavor at night. Describe the difference between the two. Well, I mean, yesterday when we were at the well, I mean, we were at the protests on Saturday and on Sunday. Uh, we joined them during the afternoon, and it is largely a peaceful protest. There are chants of people saying George Floyd's name. There are chants of saying uh, "Stop Police Brutality." And while they are breaching the barricades at the park across from the White House in Lafayette Square. Uh, they're still remaining in a peaceful manner. As the sun begins to set, though, and the tensions begin to escalate, we start to see projectiles being thrown towards police, oftentimes rocks or full water bottles. Uh, And what it does is it leads to the deployment of tear gas, which causes a panic run and increases those tensions. Then by nightfall, we start to see more of that destructive behavior. We saw things last night like street signs being lit on fire. We saw uh, uh, numerous buildings, including the labor union, AFL-CIO. We saw their building catch fire and have the windows broken in. Uh, And this is something that's playing out not just across the district, but across the country. And it really has become, uh, at least in the eyes of the president, a politically charged moment where he's using Twitter to oftentimes uh, uh, fan the flames even more. What does it say when these demonstrations are coming so close to the White House? Well, I mean, it shows that there is a real anger in this country and that they're looking 
for some kind of solution and feel that they're not getting any kind of uh, support from the highest levels of government. I mean, look, the president was 100 feet away from these protests at all times this weekend and at one point was whisked away to a bunker underneath the White House for his own safety. And here we are with the president now on Monday still not having made any kind of formal address to the nation. There's conflicting uh, uh, or there's a conflict inside the White House as to whether or not he actually should. Uh, There are some people in the administration that say the president simply has nothing to add to this right now, that uh, that if he does, if he did speak, it could potentially amplify the situation. But there is a problem in this country when it comes to institutional racism, uh, when it comes to the treatment of people with color, uh, people of color uh, by police forces. And the message that's being conveyed right now is either silence from the White House or what we've now heard is that the attorney general is going to be unleashing uh, uh, riot guards from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is only going to escalate things even further. So is there any planning of a address from the uh, president at any time this week? And if not now, when? Well, that, that's the open question right now. The, the press secretary this morning on Fox News uh, simply said that there will be no address from the Oval Office because the president believes this to be uh, you know, something that's been instigated and organized by far left members of what he believes to be Antifa, uh, anti-fascist uh, uh, kind of uh, ideological groups. Uh, and says that an Oval Office wouldn't do anything to stop that. So he's simply using Twitter where he can hide behind the safety uh, of the Internet and not actually have to be chastised or, or questioned by the media uh, for his lack of response right now. And there is no plan going forward for the president to come out. Uh, you talked about him being uh, taken down into a bunker for a period of time over the weekend because of the proximity of these demonstrations to the White House. Uh, has there been any sort of formal comment on that? Anything you can tell us on that? I'm sure the uh, the president uh, doesn't want the, the media knowing that information, considering how weak he thought it was to be wearing a mask in public. Yeah, and I mean, look, the president had over the weekend said that he was safe inside the White House, and we now understand that that safety uh, was reliant upon uh, numerous members of the Secret Service to put him in a room that would keep him safe. Uh, and the president is now facing criticisms for hiding from uh, from these protests. And yes, there is, you know, a, a very large concern uh, for the for the safety and for the protection of any president, no matter who who's sitting in the Oval Office. Uh, but the fact that the president has fanned these flames and kind of used Twitter as an accelerant uh, and then chose to hide, uh, you know, in the deepest parts of the White House, uh, it, it really is, you know, leaving those questions to be asked as to whose side is the president really on here? And if he doesn't want to choose a side, why is he simply uh, making it seem like he's choosing a side? You know, unfortunately, Reggie, we've seen this happen many times. It almost reminds me to similar situations after there's been a mass shooting. Everybody demands change and then nothing really happens. What do you think set this off this time? Was it just the fact that that video was so obvious? What do you think has set it off this way? This this country is, uh, is, is at wit's end. They are politically exhausted. They are exhausted of being in a constant battle with a president. Uh, you know, this, this goes back to 2016. It's like living the 2016 campaign election over and over again, where you're constantly reminded that this is a president who lost the popular vote and was, uh, you know, put in power by the Electoral College. Uh, and so there is, there's a breaking point when it comes to the people across the United States. Uh, and yes, we have seen this happen before. We've seen it with Freddie Gray, with Sandra Bland, with Philando Castile, now with George Floyd and many, many others. And while we do see protests break out uh, after 
a situation like this. Uh, this is the first time we've really seen this on a big national scale like this, you know, for, for decades, you know, if not back to Rodney King in the early 1990s. And it simply may be uh, because there is such an opposition uh, from the White House to the majority of the country that this was simply just the last straw. Uh, what about uh, Joe Biden on all of this? Uh, should he be saying more? And can you will you be surprised if we hear something from Obama? So here's the thing when it comes to Joe Biden. He was in uh, Wilmington this morning uh, at uh, a historically black church, uh, and he made comments saying, quote, when you have somebody in power who breathes oxygen to the hate under the rocks, it comes out from under the rocks, taking another jab at President Trump. Uh, Joe Biden over this weekend joined in to one of the protests that were taking place in Delaware. And we've seen this from uh, congressional leaders in the Democratic side of the party all weekend long. We saw Kamala Harris take place. We've heard from Stacey Abrams. We've heard uh, from uh, from the mayor of Atlanta over and over pushing back against the president. And there is now an essay that's been put forward by Barack Obama calling for unity, understanding that there is anger that needs to be dealt with. Even D.C.'s mayor was confronted this morning saying, you know, do you approve of what's happening in the district? And she said that she doesn't want to see the city torn apart, but went on to say, do you see any other country uh, in the world where protests happen because black men are killed by police? There is a systemic problem in the United States, and there are a number of people trying to address it. It's just simply not being addressed, not only by the Republicans, but also not by the president. Uh, we've talked many times, Reggie, over the years about uh, straws that break camels' backs and such. Uh, this does seem to be a turning point. Do you see that? This is. This is this is something that I've never seen. I've lived in the U.S. now for more than five years. Unfortunately, I've lived through uh, a good number uh, of school shootings. I have lived uh, in the United States through these instances of police brutality where we've seen African-American men and women die uh, well, in custody of police. And I've seen these protests break out. I've never seen these protests break out to the extent that we are right now. Uh, and the reason that we're hearing such uh, uh, an escalated level of anger uh, and frustration is because these protesters feel left behind. They feel angry. They feel that their voices have been suppressed uh, and that because they are a person of color, that they are more vulnerable to being treated uh, unequal to anybody else in this country. Uh, and, you know, whether or not it is a straw that camel, uh, that broke a camel's back or whether or not this is simply, uh, you know, they've risen to a point of where they are loud enough and they have the support behind them. This could be something that changes going forward. And this could be, you know, uh, something, you know, down the line that we see not happening again or we see happening much more often. Uh, Donald Trump's reaction here, will this be crucial to his reelection campaign? Does he got to turn this around? Well, the president has been active on Twitter today trying to make this a political moment uh, by calling out Joe Biden. Uh, you know, just within the last hour or so, there's been some leaked audio of the president in a phone call with governors across the nation, uh, and the president called them weak. The president said that they aren't acting tough enough. He called them, quote unquote, fools, which is, a, which is uh, an inappropriate word to be using in the first place. Uh, the president has made this a political situation, and the president uh, could be facing uh, some kind of political crisis going forward. He's already behind in the polls uh, to Joe Biden on a national level by more than 10 points. Uh, and given the fact that he already polls uh, uh, less well, or at least a little more poor than, than you know anywhere else in the country when it comes to the African-American uh, population, at least compared to Joe Biden, uh, this could be uh, a big bruise to his political ego going forward, uh, which is why this morning he simply tweeted, 
November 3rd, trying to remind yeah. people that there's an election coming up, but that may go that may backfire against him. Wow. Uh, we've certainly heard uh, on various levels people saying that at these demonstrations there's an element, an extremist element on the left and the right that are trying to light the fuse. That being said, if there wasn't dynamite there, there wouldn't be a fuse to light. How much are they responsible for what happens in the evening? Uh, again, is this something the president is using as a distraction? Well, I mean, look, the metrics are hard to find out, you know, who's responsible for what part of, of a protest and for who's who's responsible for creating what damage. Uh, you know, the president has said that there are people from the far left that are uh, causing some of this damage that are being some of these instigators. And some state governors are saying that as well. Uh, but state governors and leaders and police forces are also noting that there are extremists from the right that are also uh, taking part in this aggressive behavior uh, and by causing disturbances amongst these protests. Uh, but the president simply st- talks about uh, the far left and the extreme left of these of these uh, demonstrations when it comes to violence, uh, oftentimes because there is still a reliance on some people from the far right and from the extreme wings of the Republican Party uh, for the president's political future. Uh, and, you know, the president not condoning uh, what put people from the extreme right are doing leads us to one of those situations again where there are good people on all sides uh and this could be a dangerous game that the president is playing uh getting back to george floyd who's who was the real victim in all of this way back when um uh, uh will there be more charges uh in regard to those police officers if that is done won't that help to to quell this this demonstration that is a possibility. We know that the uh, investigation uh, is being handled now in a joint effort, not only by the county in Minneapolis, but also at the state level. Uh, and knowing that that could potentially increase the charge that one officer is already facing of third degree murder uh, and, and, uh, and manslaughter, uh, knowing that this could now likely lead to charges being laid against the three officers who were simply fired from their job, which is something that has been called for not only by protesters, but by congressional lawmakers, by state lawmakers, even by the mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, Adding additional charges could help these protesters uh, realize that a point has been made, that their efforts didn't simply go uh, unjust and, and that justice was able to be served. That's something that's to be seen. And until that happens, we could be looking at another night of violence across this country. Do you see that continuing until the president makes a special address on this? I don't even know if a president making a special address would do anything to stop the violence because we've seen what happens when the president talks. He'll either go Mm -hmm. off script or he'll miss a message completely uh, and be blind to a situation by trying to do something that fits his own political narrative. So even if the president did make an address, you know, it's unclear whether that's actually going to stop this violence. The thing that that protesters want to see is a change and an institutional change. And that's not something that's going to happen overnight. Reggie Giacchini down in Washington, our producer and correspondent with Global News. Reggie, thanks so much for the time. Be safe down there. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some cool news to uh, take us away the uh, take us away from the reality of, of what's going on in the world. And that is uh, going out to the next frontier, space. And this weekend, we saw the launch of a SpaceX's manned ship to the International Space Station. Uh, I think this is the first time in nine years that they've uh, launched astronauts from American soil. Uh, normally, uh, astronauts have to go to Russia and go up via a Soyuz rocket to the International Space Station. How big is this? Let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, your 
York University. Paul, it's great to speak with you. I hope you're doing well. Hi there, Scott. Yep, doing very well. Long time no chat. I know, I know. And hopefully we'll get back more to doing this sort of thing uh, as time goes on. How big a deal is this to have this rocket launch from American soil? Well, there certainly has been a lot of fanfare, and I think in large measure it is very justified. Uh, as you indicated, it's nine years since the retirement of the space shuttle program, which basically sidelined uh, NASA's ability to take anybody into Earth orbit or anywhere else for that matter. So, you know, the commercial crew program has put them back in the game as far as flying to low Earth orbit is concerned. But it's it's much more than that. It, it is to low Earth orbit and beyond. And it's not just NASA astronauts that have the potential now to fly into space. It's you and me. Uh, I mean, this is SpaceX who has, you know, designed and built and flies the crewed Dragon vehicle. And uh, Elon Musk has made no bones about it. He wants to be able to take people like you and me into Earth orbit, space tourism. He wants to take people to the moon and to Mars, beyond. So from the human spaceflight perspective, Saturday's launch has very big implications. Uh, there were so many things that just astounded me in all of this, including the fact that when the rockets uh, finished shooting the uh, the capsule up, that they actually come back and land on a platform. That, to me, is unbelievable. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, you know, to to watch what we saw uh, this past weekend, everything looks different. The suits look different. The flight deck looks different. How much has this industry changed just in those nine years? Well, there's a lot of imagination that has gone into this mission. Um, the, the space shuttle, remember, the space shuttle has its genesis back in 1981, which means it was being designed in the 70s. Yeah. And that was the last NASA U.S. vehicle uh, that was ever designed. So, you know, fast forward 40 years, it's not much of a surprise, or it shouldn't be much of a surprise, that it does have a distinctly different feel, almost futuristic. And when I was looking in over the shoulders of Benkin and uh, Hurley, it felt to me like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, Elon Musk has an imagination, and he employs people around him who are young, enthusiastic engineers who have a keen grasp of the future. And so they were not about to design something that was, shall I say, classical in any sense of the word. Mm. And that just led you and I to be on the edges of our seat watching what was coming next. And the, the whole thing has played out perfectly. I mean, you couldn't have written a better script so far with respect to the Crew Dragon Demo Flight 2. So what happens now? Talk about this whole process. It took 19 hours for them to get up and to catch up to the International Space Station, which is an orbiting issue, I understand. Uh, what is their mission? What happens now? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the Demo 2 flight could have gone direct on what we call a, a direct flight, uh, which only takes about four to five hours. This is a demonstration mission. Don't ever forget that. So they wanted to take this vehicle into orbit, literally play with it, test it, give it, uh, you know, it's like a brand new vehicle. <laughs> They're putting it through its paces. And so that's why it took 19 hours to get to the International Space Station. The demonstration is not over. They're going to be watching this vehicle literally sit in orbit the way it, uh, if you will, matures throughout its stay at the International Space Station. And then, of course, they want to bring it back probably about two months from now uh, and see how the, the splashdown works. Every aspect of this mission 
is going to be examined with a very fine tooth comb, you know, under a real strong microscope, because this is going to be the principal vehicle of the future. So they want to make sure they understand it. So Benkin and Hurley are aboard the International Space Station now. They have joined Expedition 63, so it's a five-person crew aboard. They will likely stay through to August. There's no definitive time for return yet. As I said, it's a demonstration flight. Uh, they want to uh, put these people in place in the right timeline for the replacement crew and for the next really full-fledged flight of a four-person uh, crew dragon. So there's, there's lots of variables still in place. But the bottom line to it is these astronauts are a member of Expedition 63 for the next at least two months and potentially up to four. They, the Crew Dragon vehicle is rated for orbit for four months, and that's based upon um, uh, solar panel degradation issues. Uh, my bet is they'll probably come back in two to three months. So will the same people bring it back that took it up? Yes, that is the plan. These are the only rated individuals at the moment in orbit who can fly the Crew Dragon. The other three astronauts are all rated to come back aboard a Soyuz. There's no idea how to fly the Dragon. So it'll be Benkin and Hurley who will be coming back. And then about a month, give or take, after their return, assuming everything plays out properly, and there's no reason to believe it won't, uh, then there's a four-person crew which will launch to the International Space Station to replace Expedition 63. How many people can they put in the SpaceX capsule? Technically, it's as many as seven. There are up to seven seats aboard. The plan, I believe, or at least reading between the lines with NASA and SpaceX, is they probably won't fly more than four to the International Space Station with the added uh, weight being taken up by uh, a variety of differing um, you know, cargoes and so on. So, as I said, the next flight is uh, scheduled for no earlier than August 30th, and it has a four-person crew. Uh, obviously, these have gone up unmanned for a while. Um, does that mean that the bugs are worked out, everything's safe? How dangerous is this trip back since it's the first one back? Well, uh, in answer to the first part of the question in terms of the safety of the vehicle, including the, the Falcon 9, it's, it's one of the most reliable vehicles that's ever been launched. Uh, as you say, the Falcon 9 has been flying now in a variety of capacities for well over 10 years. And yes, they have lost a couple, but they've also flown about 100 missions. So anytime you're getting into the deep 90% uh, survival rate, as far as you know, spacecraft is concerned, launches, that's very good. So the Falcon 9 is a well-understood vehicle. The Crew Dragon is a variant of the Dragon capsule, which has been used for cargo. And again, they've, they've never lost a Dragon spacecraft. Uh, so assuming that uh, you know they haven't gone out on the limb too much in terms of the changes that accommodate people on board, then the Dragon also has an extremely good track record. SpaceX has been flying for about 12 years now, and as I say, they've got a terrific track record, so there's every reason to believe that the return trip will be successful. But, you know, space is tough. Uh, we've all seen space tragedies. You can't be complacent. You've got to be aware of all the possibilities continuously but as i said history suggests that this vehicle is a very robust vehicle and we've got every reason to believe in a safe return for uh, hurley and benkin what are the challenges coming home for this well i mean the the undock should be a piece of cake they're going to sort of uh you know practice again flying manually the vehicle but it's an automated descent process 
uh, you know, the, the dragon, as I've indicated, has come back from orbit now dozens and dozens of times. It's been outside of um, uh, the space shuttle and the Soyuz spacecraft itself. It's the only vehicle that's been going up to the International Space Station and coming back with goods on board. They've done that, oh, I think about 14 times now. All picture perfect. They've all landed exactly as they were supposed to. They've all been picked up, and the supplies that they brought back from the International Space Station have been perfect. The challenge, obviously, is when you're in re-entry mode, you've got to have the capsule in exactly the right attitude so that the heat shield is protecting uh, the astronauts and the, the capsule. And then, of course, you've got to deploy the parachutes. There's a number of, of key moments during that process where disaster could strike but there is redundancy built into every aspect of the, those maneuvers so again you know it's, it's like landing an aircraft you know when you're flying at altitude of you know 10,000 meters everything is easy and you and I are drinking coffee and or, or sipping on wine but everybody's buckled in during the landing that's right. where things could go wrong because you're changing speed you're changing energies very very quickly so nobody will take the re-entry process for granted but I, I underscore again, there's every reason to believe that the Dragon is going to ace it. So, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, so the rockets that, that put this thing up up into the atmosphere then come back down and land on a platform, correct? It's a two-stage rocket. The first stage comes back. So that's the big, long, tall bit, if you will, right. uh, that does all of the hard work in getting from the launch pad up to uh, a, a few tens of kilometers and getting them up to sort of seven or 8,000 kilometers an hour. That vehicle then comes back and lands either on land or on one of the drone ships. So they aced that return landing, which we've come to expect from SpaceX. They've brought those vehicles back now 52 times since uh, 2016 safely. They've lost a couple, but by and large, they've, they've got that down pat. The second stage then pushed the Dragon spacecraft into orbit. The second stage is throwaway. So there is a portion of this vehicle right. which is uh, discarded, but that's the only portion. The, the main stage, the first stage, and the Dragon capsule, they will be reused time and time again. So, and from what I understand, when, the, when these people come back down, they will splash down. How long before they're landing again? Or is that in the, is that in the picture? Dragon will never land like we saw Space Shuttle. Uh, right. This is a throwback to the Apollo mission, if you will. And in, in a way, it's a nod to let's keep it simple. Uh, you know, if you don't have to have a vehicle with wings and hydraulics and so on, it's a much simpler vehicle. I mean, it, it, it's a capsule, you know, it's a pyramid that flies through the atmosphere and lands under parachute. It's a pretty simple system. Uh, and so that's cost effective in many ways. We all got used to seeing the beautiful side of the space shuttle land. We will see something like that again. There's a vehicle called the Dream Chaser, which is going to land very similarly uh, to the shuttle, but that is not on the, uh, the, the cards as far as SpaceX is concerned with their Dragon. Neither is Boeing's Starliner going to land like an aircraft. They both are designed to land uh, you know, under parachute canopy, although the Starliner is planning to uh, land on land, if I can use that term properly, rather than splash down as SpaceX has decided to do. So if they can bring the rocket back down and make it land on a, uh, for all intents and purposes, the, pin of a, the head of a pin, how come they can't do that with a capsule? Um, well, I, I guess, again, the short answer is 
complexity. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. if, if, the, if they miss the landing they, uh, of the first stage, it's just a piece of hardware. Uh, and we have lost a few. Bringing a capsule back down through a much fiery re-entry. Remember, the, the first stage is only traveling at about sort of seven, eight, nine thousand kilometers an hour tops as they right. turn it around and bring it back. The space capsule is falling out of orbit. It's traveling it in excess of 17,000 kilometers an hour. It's right. a much harder thing to do. And as I said, keeping it simple has been the philosophy of both Boeing and SpaceX in this regard. Whether or not that's the right tack to take or not, it is what they have decided to do. The space shuttles, landings, we got used to them, uh, and obviously you can do it. But remember, refurbishing the space shuttle took 30 to 60 days and literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Refurbishing uh, the Boeing Starliner or Dragon, uh, the, the SpaceX Dragon is much quicker. <laughs> mm. So it, it's a nod, if you will, to finance as well. Paul Delaney has been with us, professor of astronomy at York University this weekend. We saw the launch of the uh, SpaceX manned ship to the International Space Station. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. Be well. You bet. Take care, mate. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today would have been the last day of the Sobe bike service in the Hammer. However, there is a group that is interested in operating these services and uh, has uh, come up with $100,000 in funding to get through this period, as well as there's a motion being presented before council later this week to support all of this. Let's bring in Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer. He is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Well, you know, we're making our way through this. Uh, it'd be nice to go out for a bike ride right about now when you come to think about it. Uh, so what has happened? How did, how was Sobe saved here? Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're, it's, I, I, I would hesitate to say that it's saved, but it looks like, uh, it looks like things are really good. Uh, so there's a number of different, uh, initiatives that have happened. There is a GoFundMe, which has raised about $60,000. Uh, there's probably about another thirty to forty thousand dollars that's been um, that's been pledged outside of the GoFundMe, and then the uh, McNally Foundation has pledged a hundred thousand uh, dollars. So uh, that th- this is a, a pretty decent uh, pot of money that uh, Hamilton Bike Share Incorporated, which is the not-for-profit uh, local corporation that operated Bike Share before Jump came in and took over the contract, um, or sorry, before uh, Uber, I should say, came Uber, yeah. bought Jump and took over the contract. A lot of moving parts in this story. Uh, so they they ran this uh, program really effectively on a shoestring budget for uh, for a few years. You know the first four years of the program, and what they what they've said is, look, uh, allow us to operate it for nine months with this uh, envelope of money, which has the community has put forward, and you know that will buy some time to develop a sustainable uh, funding model in order to continue making this program self sufficient going forward. Uh, sounds like a great idea, and this was suggested way back when. Was this hard to assemble? Was this hard to to make happen? Well, I think once people realized that they couldn't count on council to support this really, really important initiative that is providing an extremely cost-effective transportation option for Hamiltonians. Um, you know, Hamiltonians are... We're used to our government not necessarily uh, being the leaders that we need them to be, and so people in the community have stepped forward uh, you know, they've put uh, real money and time and energy into this, and very rapidly uh, a plan has come together in order to uh, to self-finance you know, finance this program for long enough in order to put something more sustainable into the works. 
Uh, the fact that others have stepped up and helped this, what does this say about the city's responsibility? I mean, is this something the city should have been doing, or is it a case if you you know if you put some interest out there, you never know what you're going to get? Again, as you said, this certainly doesn't solve the problem, but it buys some time. Yeah, the city absolutely should have taken responsibility for this. It was it was pure spite and pure resentment that drove that deadlocked vote last Wednesday. Uh, this was money that... Why do you think that, Ryan? Well, the councillors of wards one, two, and three, you know, as you know, the, the eight old city wards receive an annual um, area rating levy, you know, which can be spent on local projects. Uh, and that money has already been budgeted and earmarked. Um, every local councillor, you know, gets a similar pool. And, uh, you know, it, it's normally a formality that council votes on the, the spending of that money. It's left up to individual wards to decide how best to allocate that money. This was a case of councillors actually overruling the councillors for one, two, and three, using their own area rating money to keep this program going. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, that being said, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, with COVID-19, with the extra pressures being uh, put on the city, and I guess all levels of government now, uh, do you think the public, and I know obviously cycling enthusiasts would be, but do you think the rest of the taxpaying public would have been happy to support Sobe, considering where we're going and, and where we're going to be in the next little while? Well, I mean, this is a conversation that we keep having in the city. Uh, the the $400,000, and in fact, that was a high end. It was up to, probably would have been closer to about two or three, because it doesn't count revenue that the system itself generates. That money is extremely cost-effective. You know, the the average cost per passenger for a bus trip in Hamilton is a little less than $5. And so fares cover about half of that cost. The cost per passenger trip for a Sobe trip is about $1.75. So it's it's actually an extremely cost-effective way of getting around. It's cheaper than public transit, which is already a very highly valuable and cost-effective system. And it's a way for people to get around the city and still social distance, right? There's a real limit to how many people we can put on buses right now because there's just some capacity issues around making sure that everybody has space. If we make these bicycles available, it's an additional transportation option that's available to people in order to get around so that our buses don't become overcrowded and dangerous. Do we actually know where the $100,000 came to keep this going? Oh, uh, and the other thing is, you know, if we're talking about money, again, like three or $400,000, this is, you know, zero point. 0.2% of the city's budget. A few weeks ago, council voted to spend $28 million to widen Rymel Road. If we're talking about things we can afford and things we can't afford, <laughs> there was no debate, there was no controversy, there was no you know, pearl clutching and hand-wringing about can we afford this, they just voted to do it. So this was a purely identity politics-driven issue. It was a tiny fraction of money. Council spent hours debating it, and they shut it down. And this was money that's already budgeted. Yeah, and I guess putting it in rental wouldn't have really seemed to make, uh, in a rental space to store it wouldn't have really seemed uh, to be very cost effective either. Uh, are you are you hopeful, and I'm sure you are, that this new, that this renewed life for the next nine months or so, will this renew interest in Sobe? Will this bring others on board? I hope it will, and, and I'm kind of glad you mentioned this because the system really has been starved for um for funding and support, you know, in the, the four or five years that it's been running. I mean, it had 27,000 active members. Last year, it carried, it carried 350,000 passenger trips. That's an amazing uh, amount of, of transportation that the system put out. That is with no advertising, no marketing whatsoever. 
can you imagine how many passengers, you know, and how many riders the system would have if it was actually actively promoted? You know, and if and one of the nice things about putting a, a business plan together is that you can start looking at, okay, how do we invest in marketing in order to get more people to sign up so we increase our revenue? How do we look at, you know, uh, selling ad rights to an outdoor advertising company? You know, you're looking at, you know, a chunk of money that you would get there. You know, let's get active about looking for a title sponsor. You know, there's been some attempt over the years to look at that, but the system wasn't particularly well known and the value wasn't particularly well understood. I think that's changing now. More people are finding out about it and recognizing this is actually a really important part of a transportation mix. It's highly visible and it's something the city brags about when it talks about how great Hamilton is when we're, you know, when we talk to people outside the city, one of the things we talk about is how great our bike share system. Inside the city, we undervalue it. Uh, what about in other cities? Anything we can learn from the way other cities are doing this? There's lots of different ways to, to go about this. One opportunity, which I think council foreclosed by deciding they didn't want to support this, is to integrate it more closely with local transit. In Los Angeles, for example, their bike share system is a part of their transit system. So you can you know, get on a bus, buy a ticket, get a transfer, get off the bus, use the transfer to sign out a bike, and then ride the rest of the way towards your house. So that's that's one of the options you can do when you value it and integrate it. You know, council would have to do a reconsideration motion at this point to do something like that. But another thing we can do is recognize that if you have enough bikes and enough stations, and if you uh, fund it properly, you can actually have a large service area and a very, very high number of riders. Uh, we certainly see advertising on, on transit and, and taxi cabs and such. How viable an option is that for Sobe? Uh, to, to, to do advertising? Yeah, to, to advertise it, sell the name rights, whatever, whatever. Yeah, so you know, I can think of a few different ways you might structure this. I mean, Hamilton Bikeshare Incorporated is a not-for-profit, you know, and they've, you know, they're asking for the opportunity to run it for the next nine months while a more kind of long-term plan is put together. That could involve a group of investors saying, okay, we're going to spend some money on this. We're going to spend some money on advertising and marketing and branding, and we're going to hope that that's going to re- you know, generate a return in increased number of riders and increased number of trips. You know, I mean, it's, at this point, because the, 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 the city refuses to treat it as the public service that it is, it's going to have to be run a bit more like a business. So whose responsibility is it to come up with that plan in the next nine months? What happens in the next nine months? Yeah, so I guess there are, you know, I understand that there are some investors in the city who are looking closely at this, you know, that they recognize some value. Um, I think the McNally Foundation probably wouldn't bother to donate $100,000 if they thought that it was just going to be a stopgap to nowhere. So uh, I think, you know, I don't, I don't have any details, but I think we're probably going to see a group of people with some money and some good ideas come together and present a more permanent plan. Hopefully that should happen in the next few weeks to months. What about usage for this service? I remember when it started, I think it was in January, wasn't it? It was in the middle of a winter, and everybody's thinking, my goodness, to start something like this in the middle of winter is even bizarre, but it, but it obviously uh, took off. Did usage continue to grow over those years? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been growing continuously and steadily every year. You know, year after year, the numbers are higher than they were, they were, than they were the year before. That first year, you know, I mean, I signed up for it. I, to be honest with you, you know, I already own a bike. I didn't think I was going to use the service very much. Uh, but I wanted to support it because I liked the concepts and I thought some people could mm-hmm. get value out of it. I have been amazed at just how useful it has become for me, you know, as a, as a way of getting around the city. It's got a number of advantages that your own bike doesn't have. You know, number one, you don't really have to worry about getting stolen, right? You mm-hmm. drive it somewhere, lock it up, and it's not your problem anymore. 
it's great for one-way trips, which is something that you can't usually yeah. do on a bike, right? If you're somewhere and don't already have your bike, you, you're stuck. But with Sobi, you just take out a bike and take it, you know? So I've, I've actually found it has been extremely useful for errands, for commuting, things like that, uh, for uses that I never thought that I would uh, pay much attention to. So it's, it's a service that once you start trying it, it's amazing how quickly it can integrate itself into how you get around. Uh, we got the one-minute warning for the Premier who is uh, on the way. Also surprising, too, Ryan, before we let you go here, uh, theft was never really an issue here, was it? Everybody was concerned about that, but has vandalism been an issue? Not really, no. There was, I think a few tires were slashed really early on. Otherwise, you know, one of the great things about these bikes is that the computer on board the bike has all the technology in the location. So if you steal a bike, they can watch you driving away with it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, are you surprised we ended up where we are? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not surprised. I thought somebody would hopefully come in and and, and help out until a, a, a permanent solution is found. Are you surprised we are where we are? Well, not particularly. I mean, I, I was hoping, I always, I always have high hopes for council. They don't always deliver. They didn't in this case, but I always have high hopes for the community and the community almost always does deliver. All right. Ryan McGreal has been with us. Raise the hammer, raise the hammer.org to find out more. And it looks like Sobe has a, a bit of a, a reprieve for the next nine months while they try to figure out a plan on how to make it a more permanent fixture in Hamilton. Thank you so much, Ryan. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. All the best. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.